Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. I want to say a brief word. The, the psalm that we're in, the place that we've been kind of working through Scripture, um, is the city of David, and, and David in Jerusalem, and, and it's this, the heart of Israel. And if you've been checking the news at all, you've seen that Israel is under attack and that there has been this kind of coordinated, uh, wild, overwhelming uh, terrorist insurgents. And so as um, Christians, we have this uh, tie to the land of Israel. We have a tie to it as the holy land um, of the Jews as God's people, uh, the people through whom he brought Jesus. Uh, more than that, we have friends there and we have a family that is tied in there in this church. And so um, before we get started, I want to see, let's pray together and just uh, pray for uh, peace and protection for brothers and sisters in Israel and lift them up before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we, um, we know this is not new in the story of Israel. Lord, that uh, the centuries have shown uh, that the world is, is always coming down on your place and on your people. And yet, Father, uh, with personal relationships, with families connected, uh, Father, we are uh, imploring you or appealing to you to uh, protect your people, to, to deal swiftly with uh, the injustices, Lord, to uh, bring about uh, true peace, not only in the hearts of those that are uh, sheltering and in fear in the moments, uh, but God, that you would bring uh, a grander peace in whatever way you choose to do it. Uh, Lord, we have all of our ideas, and yet you uh, are not surprised by what's happening today, and, and yet, um, Father, we have no answers other than to trust you. We pray specifically for uh, the Daly family and uh, Yom and her relatives that are still left in Israel and still in harm's way. Father, we ask that you would uh, especially protect them, protect the family as they uh, work through the, the worry and the anxiety of, of having loved ones at risk. And more than anything, Lord, we uh, trust you and your story as we read of ancient parts of, of you working through your people in your land. Uh, Lord, remind us that uh, we can be part of praying for your people today, that we can be part of restoring your land today. Um, Lord, show us what it means to be the community of heaven here and with brothers and sisters around the world. So we lift that up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. So, um, into week four, the fourth and final week of our Psalm 51 series. Um, we've been walking with David for a bit. We've been walking through his response to his uh, grave sin. And uh, today, where I want to start is not in, um, not in David's house, not in the temple, not in Israel. I actually want to start in Johannesburg, South Africa. I want to show you a building built in 1975. Uh, this building with the red uh, screen on top is called the Ponte City Tower. Okay, Ponte City was built in 1975. It was the height of glamour and luxury living. 55 stories tall, 567 feet tall. Ponte City was sold as um, just the utmost in urban Living. This is a time when South Africa, and specifically Johannesburg, was called the Manhattan of Africa, where it was the commercial center, the um, place where money and glitz and glamour existed. 
And so this was built as uh, this kind of, it's on this hilltop, you can't quite tell, but it's on a hill, and it, it just looks over the entirety of the city. It was the tallest residential building in Africa. It is the picture of urban glamour. And interestingly, there, South Africa had this law where every room, uh, especially bathroom, uh, but every room had to have outside air access for sunlight and fresh air. As a result, this enormous tower was built with an open core, which is one of the spookier things you've ever seen. So every single unit had access to the inner core and the outer core. It was all this, this wild building that makes for incredible photography. People have like jumped, they skydive off the middle and through, the, I don't, it, it's bizarre. What happened though is apartheid eventually crumbled and with it, the country went through massive shifts and crime rose like you wouldn't believe. In the 1990s, uh, South Africa was the murder capital of the world. It's getting back there these days. They're rising up the ranks. This tower, as the wealthy people who lived there fled the crime-ridden city, this tower was actually um, hijacked. They, I mean, that's just what they say. It was hijacked by gangs. So imagine a 55-story tower that's been just taken over, and all the people who lived there rightfully have left, and they now hijack the thing. There were entire floors that were set up as brothels, and you could buy an illegal gun or drugs or really anything you wanted in there. But it was absolutely run by the gangs of the 90s. It, and this inner core became a symbol of something much more rotten, is as services broke down in the city, people who were living here illegally would simply throw their garbage out that inner window. And at its worst, the garbage was over five stories tall in the center. And the urban legend that may be rooted in truth is that as people became desperate, they would often jump towards the center, and so the, the bodies were littered in there with it. At its worst, at its most broken, there were 10,000 residents living in this building. I, I can't even imagine 10,000 residents. That's how many people live essentially on this side of Main Street in Bowling Green. And if you put all of us into one building, Proposals were made that the uh, army should go in, clear the building by force, and then legitimate proposals were made in the government to turn it into a 55-story prison. That's how dark it had gotten. It's only 20 years after it was built. The Guardian newspaper called it the tallest, grandest urban slum in the world. Eventually, though, things turned around. They regained control, and over more than a decade, the building was restored. It was painstaking work. It was tremendous work tremendous cost, and in response to the restoration, the building was again embraced as a place to live. Today, it's back to being occupied. It's back to being kind of this beacon in the city, and the city's still pretty rough, but, but people live, they have fingerprint access. You can only get in using your fingerprint, and the 24-hour guards and security, 50-second story is available for rent. You can go on Airbnb, stay there for a night. 50-second story penthouse, multiple bedrooms. Um, you can see hundreds of miles from the top cost you $27 a night. That tells you the neighborhood. You can rent the apartment by the month for about $400. But today it's back to being what it was designed to be. It's back to being fully occupied. It's back to fulfilling its original purpose. Something that was built to be one thing became something else when it was broken. But it's back to being what it was. That's what today's sermon is. Let's read the scripture. Psalm 51, verse 13. Then, David says, I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. 
Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You are God my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, and in burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. If you're just joining us this week, if it's your first week jumping in, David is, is asking for restoration from God, and he says, then, if, if I can just be restored, then I'll live my life for you. I'll tell everybody about you. David has come to the awareness and the fullness of his shame, and in response, in the middle of of this in verse 12, what does he say? He said, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Rejoy, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore me. And today is all about the response to that restoration. If God, if you'll just restore me, here's what I'll do for you. David's not making a deal with God. David is promising God that in his restoration, he will live a new way. You ever have a child ask you for money? Hey, dad, can I have 20 bucks? What's the, what's the parent response to dad, can I have 20 bucks? What do you need it for? That's the first thing you think. Even if you don't say, the first thing you think is dad can I have 20 bucks. You go, for what now? What's going on? Fill me in. What happened? I mean, maybe you're a more generous parent than I. Maybe you're just going, yeah, 20 bucks. Let's go. I would ask for more. Um, but your first, first, first response is always, well, what's it for? What are you doing? What, 20 bucks? Maybe that doesn't buy what it used to. It buys half a coffee now. And so, but here's 20 bucks. What are you going to use it for? In a sense, David is answering that question preemptively as he talks to his father in heaven. David is saying, Father, I desire to be restored. I'm looking for the gift of your restoration, and here's what I will use it for. If you've ever been asked for 20 bucks and told what it's for before the sentence is over, it, it kind of helps, doesn't it? He's not twisting God's arm, but it is a helpful uh, clarifier. Dad, can I have 20 bucks to feed the poor? And you go, wow, harder to say no now, isn't it? He tells God and he shows us what he's going to do with it. Rooted back in God's design of David and desires for David, David recommits to his purpose. I'll teach others your ways. I'll declare your praise. I'll bring you my whole life as a sacrifice. And I'll use that life to help others find the restoration that you're giving me. This is really big. So like, don't lose the overall plot of the psalm. The, the plot of the psalm is what? There's this massive sin that David engages in, adultery and murder. And David is feeling the full weight now, uh, replacing his shame and his guilt. He's feeling the full weight of the mercy of God upon him. And in response to that, He's telling God, here's what I'm going to do with the life that you've given me. I don't even deserve to live based on what I've done. And yet you're allowing me life and here's what I'm going to do. This is important for us. The reason we're in this, we are all in a battle. We're all in these seasons, whether we want to admit it or not. Each of us lives with uh, flesh. Each of us drives ourselves occasionally through these seasons and these valleys where sin kind of hangs on us like a shadow. We all go through difficult seasons and some come upon us without any of our doing, illness, tragedy. But most of our battles, if we're honest, we look back, most of our battles can be traced on some level to our sin or our disobedience. Probably not in scope and severity like David, but through pride, 
we usually find ourselves in a tight spot. We find ourselves in a valley, and if we trace it back, you go, yeah, I could see that. David has just trudged through some profoundly awful things. And his, real, his realization is that he had tried to minimize, he had tried to justify, which just got him into deeper trouble. He's aware that there are re- religious rituals that would help him gain atonement, and yet he says, God, you do not delight in sacrifice. This is actually a pretty profound thing that he says. The, the Jewish world was, sacrifice was the currency of transacting with God. No matter what you were doing, sacrifice was always part of it when, when interacting with God. Sacrifice would get you clean. Sacrifice would be your offering. Sacrifice, could, sacrifice was in every part of Jewish life. And David says really boldly, God, you do not delight in sacrifice. So if not traditional sacrifice, what is David suggesting? Should we try harder? Should we add new rules, more rules, extra rituals, more stuff, better religion? He's saying you don't delight in these. These sacrifices that we keep bringing aren't doing the job. So he proposes a new kind of sacrifice, a broken and contrite heart. A broken spirit and a contrite heart is my sacrifice. David's acknowledging that all the religious activity in the world without the heart behind it is pretty worthless. That is important for us sitting in a church in 2023. All of the religious activity on earth without the heart behind it, God looks at it and goes, I don't need this. I don't need your songs. I don't need your sermons. I don't need your service. I don't need it. Without the heart behind it, it's nothing. You're you're doing something for you. That's not for me. David acknowledged in the psalm that God's judgment was just, that that the roots of his sin are deep. And and so what he offers instead of another ritual, instead of another bull split in half on the altar, what he offers is himself, his spirit, his heart. David is finally getting honest with God and actually understanding the honesty of God, both related to what he's done and what God desires of him in return, what he was built for. But admitting that, admitting his need admitting that he can't do it himself, that he can't just erect his own restoration, admitting that is admitting weakness. And we look at that and we go, well, that's kind of cute. That's humble of David to admit his weakness. And we think of David, the shepherd boy. He's King David. Kings make the rules. Kings do what they want. So for the king to say, I can't actually do this anymore. I need a higher power. I need to submit my life to something greater. That's a profound statement. And you and I, we run into this too. How hard is it to admit that we need something? Most of us just stuff down the brokenness a little deeper. We make that joke in my house sometimes when people are telling an emotional story. I'll be like, it'll be all right. Just push it down into a little ball in your stomach. It'll be fine. Let's not talk about it. It's hard to admit vulnerability. And we live in a world, though, that's a a never let them see you sweat kind of world. Make it look easy. Don't show anyone you're vulnerable. Don't allow people to see your flaws. Don't ask for help. Even if you need it, don't ask. Humility is hard. Do you ever, you ever see that team lift symbol on a box? You know, the thing, it's like two stick figures holding a box together, and it says team lift on the side. When you buy something heavy, it always says team lift. You know why they had to do that. Some of you are, are already chuckling because you have hurt backs as a result of this. This is because dumb men kept trying to lift boxes by themselves. This is essentially what happened. Is men 
Maybe women. I'm not trying to leave you out, ladies. You can have equality here if you want it, but I don't think you want it. How many times have you seen a box and go, I can get that? And my wife will say, that's pretty awkward, though. That's an awkward shape. I don't know if you can carry that. Big. I got it. And then three days later, I'm just crushing Advil going, this is so much pain. <laughs> so they add the Team Lift little logo now. And so now you go to Home Depot and you buy your giant thing or whatever, and it says Team Lift. And now what is Team Lift to the dumb male population of America? It's a challenge, right? They're like, oh, you think I need two people? Watch this. It made us dumber because we're prideful, because we want to lift things and show people that we can do it ourselves. It's pride. Remember uh, my favorite slide I've ever showed about toddlers hiding? Remember this from a few weeks ago where I said toddlers are really bad at hiding? This is what we do in response to sin. We run and we hide, and this is what we look like. God is looking for us, and we think we're really hidden. We're in the clear box, like, he can't find me here. This is the best slide I've ever shown. I should just show this every week. I'm going to come up with a reason because everybody loves this slide. It's so great. I mean, the, the guilt in the eyes on the bottom right will get you, right? He's like, oh, man, I'm so stuck. Okay, so this is toddlers hiding. I would like to uh, submit to you the second best slide I'll ever show you, which is pride, which is toddlers I do it myself slides, which is that. I think... I think the one girl was trying to get cereal. Um, good job. The others were baking, maybe. Um, the, the, the purple dress girl, from what I understand, that's lotion or some sort of expensive uh, beauty cream I don't understand. And then the kid on the right, I had to delete that from my phone. I kept seeing that being like, what is happening on my phone? And it's just a, it's a kid playing in paint. But um, who knows? He had an idea, and what did he do? He said, I do it myself. And throughout history, parents have gotten up from, you know, sleeping in on Saturday at 7.15, and parents all over the world have found their children in some sort of disarray because they had an idea and they wanted to do it themselves. This is what we look like when we say, I'll do it myself. I'll get there myself. I can white-knuckle my way to restoration. This is the picture. So what do we learn? We need restoration. We can't accomplish it ourselves. Even the kings among us, even David, can't do it himself. And so what does that tell us? Humility precedes restoration. Humility precedes restoration. Humility is hard. David says, I need help. I may be king, but there's a greater king. For our lives, this becomes the thing we have to learn how to say, that everything in the world is trying to convince you that you are royalty in your own world, that you're the king or queen of your own existence. And yet, we need to learn from David's example that while we may be in charge of our own lives, while we may be king or queen of our own existence, there's a higher power and a greater king that we might need to find. David says, I need a greater king, and if I can just have this restoration, here's what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to offer you my life. The writer to the, the Romans urges believers to do the same in a really familiar passage. Having just quoted Job at the end of Ro, uh, Romans 11 about the wisdom of God and how no one can know it, he then says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Therefore, therefore, comes back to Romans 11, because God has so much wisdom, because God knows everything, and we can't even begin to approach what God knows about the world around us. 
because the whole picture of the universe is known by God because God is sovereign and above us because he is wise and trustworthy. Because God, therefore, what could be better than using your lives in service of the God who runs this thing? It's not just to be a sacrifice. It's not go be a martyr because that's the right thing to do. It's, it's rooted in the idea that the king of the universe knows what's good. The king of the universe knows what flourishing looks like. The, the God of creation knows the path for you. And if that was true, then why wouldn't we want to give our lives to the God of the universe knowing that he knows the path? It seems silliness in hindsight where you go, why wouldn't we do that? Well, because we're toddlers and we're prideful and we decide to do our own thing because we get distracted or we get these desires come up. And so we choose our own path and choose our own adventure and we go, man, this didn't work out. Why is this a dumpster fire? Which brings us back to God again. I would argue that um, this return to this restored life, this living sacrifice life, I would actually argue that that's a return to our, our ultimate design. We talk about design a bit in here and, and, and what our design is. I think we were designed for God, by God. I could, um, I could do a thing where I'd use something that isn't for its design. So I could turn off my microphone and I could say that I'm going to use the Bible as a microphone. I could do that. Let's see how it goes. I can use the Bible as a microphone, but the Bible isn't a microphone. It's a Bible. It's a book. It's paper. The microphone is the microphone. That's its design. The Bible is a book to be read. It's wisdom. It's God's word. It's got its own design. But the two designs don't mesh. So the question for us is, what's our design and who's in charge? Who designed us? And for what did they design us? Because if we choose to live outside of our design, we end up misusing our design, and it doesn't work the way it was intended. David recognizes God's sovereignty and his glory, and that there's no purpose above God, that we were made by God for God. We go to the New Testament again. Paul tells the Colossians this way. He says, for in him, all things were created. In God, all things were created. Things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, this is important, all things have been created through him and for him. If that's true, then it should change the way we see the world. If all things were created by God, for God, then we begin to understand the design of creation. Creation exists to glorify the designer. It exists to serve the purpose of the designer. You were made by God, for God. The Westminster Catechism is an evangelical roadmap to what we believe. The question asked to this answer, the question is, what is the chief end of man? Essentially, what is the purpose of mankind? And the Westminster Catechism would say man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is um, the culminated wisdom of scholars all over set in the 1600s, and it's been uh, reaffirmed year after year. What is the purpose of man when you comb through the entirety of Scripture? Why are we created for? Why do, do hum humans exist? What's the point? And the point is that we might glorify God and enjoy him forever. If that's our design, how are we doing at fulfilling our design? You exist by the hand of God for the glory of God. That is your purpose, to give glory to your creator. In your job, in your relationships, 
in your finances. Your job, your purpose is to give glory to your creator. So what would be happening if you operate outside of your purpose? What might go on if you live outside of your design? You might find yourself in dark places. If you live to glorify yourself, you'll probably do that. But that's not what you were designed for, and so it ends in all kinds of brokenness. David is coming back to his purpose. He's saying, I exist to lift you high. I exist to give my life to you as a sacrifice. His response to his restoration is actually submission. And sacrifice requires submission. We like the idea of sacrifice. We actually champion the word of sacrifice, but we don't like the idea of submission. Submission is one of those words you're not supposed to say in the modern church. Submission. Modern people don't like submission. We like to be in charge of ourselves. The problem is this. You won't give of yourself. You will never sacrifice to another unless you submit to the idea that their needs come before yours. All sacrifice is predicated by submission. Why would I ever give of myself for someone else unless for even a moment I decided that their needs came before me? Submission is at the heart of faith. We cannot have faith without submission. It's hard for independent people. It's hard for Americans. Land of the free. I submit to nobody. Submission is willfully giving up agency or independence in service of another. Willfully giving up agency or independence in service of another. Yielding to a higher higher power or yielding our will to the authority of another. Submission means giving up the throne of your life to a greater king. And we might mentally assent to that, but most of us will go, but nah, I'm good though. I got plans. Biblical construct of a family has kids submitting to parents, wives to a husband and a husband to the Lord. We don't like that. I would tell you the breakdown is foundationally in the husband. So husbands, men, step it up. When the husband doesn't submit to the Lord, who would want to follow his personal agenda? The problem we face in the American family construct is that husbands aren't submitted to the Lord. It can all come out of that. And submission is a culture-wide issue, but the main issue is that when husbands don't model what it looks like to submit your life to, to a, an authority, then why would any husband demand sub- submission or authority in their home? Husbands, submit to your master and your creator. Show what it means to serve others sacrificially. Either a husband submits to God and serves the Lord or the whole thing shakes and crumbles and we see it all the time. I wouldn't want to follow somebody on his own agenda and priority either. Submission is the heart of faith. Jesus said it to his disciples in Matthew 16. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what good, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus says, you'll have to let go of yourself if you'll ever be able to grab hold of me. 
You can chase what you want. You can submit to your desires in the flesh. You can gain the whole world and lose yourself along the way. That's David's journey. It's our journey. And Jesus says there's a better way that leads to life. But it, call, it calls for you to deny yourself, deny yourself, take your cross and submit to Jesus. To have your agenda begin conforming to his agenda. Have your priorities start to look like his priorities. Have your purpose begin to match his purpose. Only in denying yourself and submitting to God do you find freedom and forgiveness. It's counterintuitive, but the only place of freedom on earth is submission to God. You might say, listen, you're twisting Jesus' words there. Jesus says to follow him. He doesn't say submit to him. So to a first century Jew, which you need to understand who Jesus is speaking to, Jesus is speaking to, to young men and young women, and he's saying, if you follow me, it requires you give up everything. To follow the rabbi was not to like um, click on the follow button and be like, this is cool. I'll get his posts every day. He's got some cool wisdom. Sweet filter, bro. To follow is to submit. Jesus said, come follow me. And they dropped their nets and followed. Means they gave up their jobs and they followed. Jesus said, come follow me. And so they would leave their home and follow him. They would walk away from their family and follow him. They literally physically followed him through the countryside. Married men had to get notes from their wives, allowing them to leave the family behind and follow a rabbi. This was first century Judaism. This is what Jesus is inviting them into. Not follow me, follow me. Submit your entire being to this way of life walk in the dust of my sandals and see what life is all about. Those disciples who spent three years with Jesus eventually saw him crucified and resurrected. They followed him all the way to the cross. What did they see there? They saw the ultimate act of sacrifice and submission, didn't they? Jesus isn't asking us to do something he didn't do. Jesus isn't challenging you to do something that he was unwilling to do. God is never going to ask you to do something he hasn't done first. He who had no sin took our sin, submitted his will to that of the Father, and sacrificed his life for us. Jesus looked at us and said, even just for a moment, he was allowing that you were worth it. The cross is the symbol of sacrifice and submission. And so then Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Take up sacrifice and submission. And then go and make disciples. Go and live life for others. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. forever. And the way you're going to do that is sacrifice and submission. Our mission statement is to know Jesus and make him known. To know Jesus is to know the teaching of Jesus and the instruction of Jesus. And that Jesus said, if you really want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. Take up the instrument of submission and sacrifice to follow me. Take up the idea that there's a greater king than your own life to follow me. If you want to follow me, you are going to give yourself up. Deny yourself to see my will be done, to see my priorities achieved, my agenda sought for. Next week, we're going to start a series on the Sermon on the Mount. There's no more clear articulation of what this, this Jesus life, this kingdom life, this following of Jesus looks like. All the instructions you can imagine, all the teaching you could ever want. So if you're going, what does it look like to follow him though? Stay tuned. For today, my prayer is this, as we close this series, my prayer is that you would see that what sin fractures, God can restore. So if you're in a spot today and you go, look, I'm still in the broken section, I'm not in the restored section, so the motivational speech about submission is cool, but I'm not there yet. If you're still in the broken section, 
God wants to restore you. What sin breaks, God restores. Then if you are on that path of restoration, if you can remember where you've been, if you know your path and you see that God has put the pieces back together and you know that God has put you back on the path to life, then I pray that you would see that the way to life on that path of life is to continue to lean into your designer, to continue to fulfill your design, that you were created by God for God and your purpose is to glorify him forever. So today, my prayer is that we would all find the heart of submission and the fullness, not the sadness, not the depression, the fullness of joy and freedom that comes with knowing that the God of the universe who created all of this is ultimately in charge, especially of me. Let's pray. God, thank you for being a God of restoration. Father, when we stumble, uh, you're never far. Lord, thank you for your clarity and your word. Thank you for Jesus and his example of what this life might look like if we simply live out our design. Father, I pray for each heart in this room that is struggling with some part of this. For those struggling in the, the brokenness and in and the impacts of sin, God, my prayer is that Father, they would run to you, that you would run to them, that they would find your peace and your wholeness along that path. God, for those that uh, may know you, may have your salvation and may call you king and yet struggle to submit life to you, Lord, my prayer is that you would spare them from the path of humility that takes us through devastation, but God, you might inspire hearts today to submit fully to who you are, to live out our purpose for you, to know that it doesn't rob us of anything we're chasing, but it fulfills us in ways we can't imagine. So God, impress that upon us. Lead us not into temptation. Draw us into your presence that we might know you and make you known in this world. We lift these things up in Jesus' name. Amen.